0: Welcome to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. First of all, I hope you're listening to this podcast safe and in good health. And if you're not, I wish you a speedy recovery. The best thing about being a journalist is being able to access the top minds and experts to make sense of the world. So today, with economies and our clients being forcibly shut down, events cancelled, sovereign and corporate bonds undergoing spectacular gyrations and share prices tumbling globally with insurers' stock falling more than the market average, I wanted to talk to someone smart to help ordinary people like me and you to understand a bit of what is happening and what might be at stake. I also wanted to talk to someone who could put what we're experiencing into some kind of historical context and see if there are any lessons from crises past that we should be reminding ourselves of today. So that's why I'm delighted that this episode's guest is is David Flandreau, Managing Director, Analytics at Hyperion X. Long standing listeners will remember David from episode three, where he was talking about the 1st of January renewals. I originally had this interview in the diary with David to be about the fourth quarter and the full year 2019 results season that has just passed. But given the circumstances, I thought that that would be inappropriate. So listen on for a state of David's thinking about how the industry is likely to cope with the COVID-19 crisis on the risk and on the asset side of its balance sheet. There are plenty of caveats, of course, but David gives us a lot to think about, some things to worry about, and some measure of assurance. In times of crisis, I always seek out the brightest and the most eloquent, and David is certainly both. So I therefore commend this podcast to anyone who wants to learn more about how insurance really responds to economic and other shocks and the crises that follow them. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you the listener are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Okay, David. Okay. Thanks very much for, for for taking the time out. I hope everything's going well with you. What I want, we, I know we, we slated this uh, meeting in to do a big roundup of Q4 and the full year uh, 2019 results, but I think we've kind of, uh, events have overtaken us <laughs> a little bit, uh, to say the least. So I thought right. it would be worth using our time uh, wisely and try and talk around uh, the coronavirus, COVID 19, however you want to describe it, and, and, and see. For one, I'd just like to ask you where you think uh, we're likely to be as an industry globally, uh, the insurance industry on on the risk side of things, and also how it's going to affect us on the asset side of things. We might as well deal with where you think uh, the hit is coming on on the risk side of things, and also what I'd like to ask you is, I know that you've got a lot of um, you've got a lot of really good metrics now at Hyperion X looking at uh, day-to-day movements in pricing and things. So maybe you could start off with where the day-to-day movement in pricing in, in different classes, of if there's any notable moves that you've seen already, uh, given that you're monitoring things very sort of, you know, almost on a real-time basis.
1: We are monitoring things very closely, thank you, yes. And um, I, I guess the thing to say really is that um, we've got a few different events coming up, clearly the, the April 1st renewals, the, the June and July 1st renewals. And in many ways, particularly in reinsurance, the, the trends, um, going into those renewals haven't changed as much as perhaps you would have thought yet. And I'm there, I'm talking about things like Japanese wind, excessive loss, business, etc. where we are seeing things change though, are on other uh, primary renewals where you've got, um, uh, a lot of requests for extensions happening uh, for, for obvious reasons, just because people want to wait and see on both sides of the trade, how things turn out. And we're doing this in a very qualitative uh, way, uh, doing it uh, really blocking and tackling client by client, market by market, trying to make sure that everybody's comfortable with, um, with whatever deal is struck to
0: extend um, contracts uh, as we get through this. So are but, they just... Um, um... So they generally sort of ex, um, just extension on expiring terms, just pro rata, that kind of thing, a couple of months, three months? Uh, I, I wouldn't say generally, but certainly there
1: are uh, people on both sides of the trade asking for that, as, as you can understand in, in, in a situation like the one that we're in. But um, you began by asking about the two different sides of the effect that this might have. And you mentioned first on the risk side, and second, on the balance sheet side, which I think um, is pretty interesting, because I think the effects are going to be different in magnitude. I mean, it, obviously, on the risk side, I think, as you described it, there there are lines of business that are obviously going to be affected. And, and there, you you know, you can talk about CBI, um, but but then you have to talk about where there are public liability and civil authority covers. There, there are a whole bunch of different lines, MedMal, Workers' Comp. Um, event cancellation, travel, mortgage, aviation, uh, we're all online right now, so cyber is going to be affected, credit, insurance, energy, each and every, we could spend an hour talking about the effect on each and every one of these uh, lines, professional indemnity, DNO, um, and each and every one will, have, will experience a slightly different effect due to the coronavirus, now, and that's before you get into talking about just traditional life accident and health policies and the magnitude. But in the in the next quarter or two, the magnitude of claims coming through those policies well, not insignificant and not uh, in volatile. I guess it, it's important to recognize that those claims are manageable, given the amount of capital that the insurance sector has, and even where we can find the really big claims like the Tokyo Olympics, if you extrapolate what individual companies are saying, you're talking about single digit billions. And that, that's not insignificant at all. It's, it's very significant and important, especially to the people involved. But this is an industry that had a $150 billion loss here in 2017 and sustained it with some earnings pressure, but not capital pressure. So the, the risk side, or if you will, the P&L side of the industry, for the next couple of quarters, I don't see anything acute enough uh, to be um, too worrying in the next couple of quarters. But the other side of the equation, as you mentioned, is is not claims, it's the balance sheet of the sector. And um, this is a little bit more akin to what was happening after the financial crisis, although it's really important to note that the insurance sector is nowhere near as heavily leveraged to what I would call structured assets as it was going into the financial crisis. So some of the things that, that we've talked about before, um, you know, the... Well, obviously, uh, we
0: don't have an AIG this time in, in in sense of, you know, super senior credit default swaps and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's just not on on the balance sheet anymore.
1: That's right. After the financial crisis, the, if, if I may say, the uh, aggregate balance sheet of the entire insurance sector became much more conservative, so much so um, that... You know, you, basically, you're looking mainly at, at uh, medium to short dated, high grade fixed income securities uh, in in terms of what is the largest asset. And if you look at solvency two ratios going into this, I mean, if you look at some of the reinsurers, uh, I'm thinking of one that has a Swiss solvency test ratio going into this, uh, I think in the 230 percent range. I'm sure that it's gone down now, but. This is a different situation than that in terms of the sector's balance sheet than the one that we were in in 2007 with the sector just coming out of the liability crisis, uh, just coming off of the back of Hurricane Katrina, um, and all of the stuff that preceded that. We're, we're not in that situation at all. Um, the, the balance sheet of the sector is much more sound. That said, though, it is um, notable that after, you know, 11 years of relatively lackluster investment returns, some carriers were starting to just move into slightly more aggressive assets. They were starting to gear up a little bit more on equities. And so some of those price movements will have a balance sheet effect for certain carriers. And you can see that with rating agencies now reacting and and looking at short-term price movements and asking for stress testing. Um, asking about what, that, what effect that will have on growth expectations. Was that, just
0: partly, was that partly an effect of having had such a great year in the stock market last year that people just let it ride and allowed that, that allocation to rise along with the increase in the values of the stocks they were holding, or, or was it more of a conscious decision to say, well, I want to allocate more to stocks?
1: I would say more of the former, but possibly the latter at the margin. And if you think about this, uh, one of the reasons why rates were going up, um, in, in addition to the entirety of claims trends that we can, we could analyze in some detail, but one of the reasons that rates were starting to go up was that insurance companies almost universally in the P and C sector were earning um, you know, decadal lows in terms of investment yield and particularly investment return. And that's because balance sheets were so conservative, uh, both for strategic reasons, but also for regulatory and rating capital reasons coming out of the financial crisis. So it's CIOs were moving into slightly more uh, aggressive assets with a little bit more yield pickup. And yeah, if, if the equity proportion of the portfolio had grown, they weren't necessarily scaling it back. So if, if this had happened five years ago, um, I've suppose that the effect on balance sheets would have been marginally less. It still won't be something that is necessarily of a big concern, but but it's, it's gonna be separate um, from just the claims effect that we're seeing from those business lines that we named before. So you'll have an earnings effect and a balance sheet effect. The earnings effect is a little bit um, easier to quantify in terms of quarterly returns on equity and what effect different business lines and claims trends might have in the quarter. The balance sheet effect, though, is going to be pretty significant, especially when you have, you know, you've got a 10-year Treasury note uh, trading at below 100 bips on most days last week. Um, You've got extreme volatility happening in the fixed income markets. If you mark, uh, even if you mark some of the higher grade securities to market on the available for sale side of the balance sheet, you're going to see some volatility. There's no doubt about that. And that will have an effect
0: on things. Is there anything to look into in terms of our industry's allocation to corporate uh, debt? Um, has that changed much over the time? Again, we're, if we're in a situation where whole economies are shutting down and those corporates are simply uh, not getting the income they used to or just or getting no income, uh, if they're in the hospitality sector, we've also got a problem with the energy sector, which, of course, has quite a lot of debt out there and probably is the largest sector in the corporate traded debt Sector, again yeah. with the oil price having completely plummeted. Uh, what's is that a worry? Uh, um, you know, you look at a, a, a typical PNC insurer and you see maybe a fifty percent allocation to to corporate bonds. Uh, how much of a worry is that? And, and uh, you know, because fifty percent sounds like a hell of a lot to me. But uh, uh, have you got any yeah. view on that?
1: I do. Well, first of all, just just to remember that in extremists, I mean, if we get to the extreme case, then everything's a worry, right? (laughs) So there's there's always that caveat. Um, But in terms of the corporate debt that's held on the balance sheets of most insurance companies, it, it is pretty high in terms of the capital structure pecking order. So... I mean, if you've got investment grade or higher, as most insurance companies and certainly most reinsurance companies do in in their corporate bond portfolio, you are looking not just at the ability of corporations to generate earnings to to pay interest, although that's really important. If you're looking at solvency, you're just looking at the assets of the corporation vis-a-vis its obligations. And again, insurance companies tend to, uh, certainly PNC insurance companies and reinsurance companies tend to hold uh, corporate debt that's high up in the pecking order. I'm not trying to be sanguine about this at all. As I said, in extremists, uh, everything is a worry, okay? But it it isn't as if uh, our insurance carriers are heavily geared to structured assets, structured mortgages, CDOs, um, collateralized loan obligations, and, and that sort of thing, like they were more often going into the 2008
0: crisis. This is much more like really blue chip corporates that are generally credit worthy. Uh, Maybe you're charging them more than you did last week, but you'd still lend to them. They would be able to roll over this debt, no problem, and and repay you the outstanding amount when when they come due.
1: Again, I don't wanna be too sanguine, but we're talking about high grade, medium duration fixed income securities here. Uh, when we're talking about the corporate bond portfolio of the reinsurance sector, there are individual exceptions, but uh, in general, the the asset side of the reinsurance and most of the P and C insurance sector's balance sheet is secure. Now, remember that's w- one of the things that you're talking about. There is, you know, refinancing risk, and, and you're also talking about uh, default risk. That's those are all really important problems. But in the near term the thing that's going to affect um, insurance company balance sheets in terms of what they report in terms of book value is just the mark to market. What do these wild swings in interest rates mean for the fixed income securities and equities, although many uh, less equities that are sitting on insurer and reinsurer balance sheets. And that's something that we're monitoring every day now.
0: So it's going to be a mark to market effect. So that's what we're really going to be looking out for at uh, Q1 is sort of what's happened to everybody's, you know, what they're going to be saying.
1: In the short term, I think that's right. Longer term, you know, everything's up for grabs in terms of how the economy performs. Long term, in terms of government action and its effect on carriers in the longer term, but in the short term, it's a mark-to-market effect and its claims effect.
0: Well, um, we're in a kind of interesting position in that we, you know, we've already been. You've been using this as a reference point that we've, we've we went through a global financial crisis. You know. Uh, uh, 11, 12 years ago. Uh, what do you think is different about this, this crisis or, or what can we use from the previous crisis uh, uh, as a guide on, on the effects on some, some classes and, and, and also on the balance sheet? You know, what, 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 are the, what lessons could we be applying and, and, and sort of getting out of a history drawer and, 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 and reading up on to, to remind us of some of the things that happened last time and what we could learn from that?
1: Well, I guess there are a couple of differences between um, the crisis this time and last time if you're thinking about the insurance sector. Last time, the, the crisis um, was caused in large part by activities within the financial sector. Those were related to balance sheet leverage and uh, asset allocation decisions that were undertaken by inter alia insurance companies last time around. I'm going into the crisis last time again the sector was not as well capitalized as it could have been, especially given its asset allocation. The, the huge influx of um, quantitative easing and fiscal spending and the bailouts that happened last time um, did sustain the financial sector um, through the crisis. Uh, you, you, at least one can make a very strong argument in favor of that. And that's because the financial sector was the cause of the crisis. It was the financial crisis. This time around, we're, we're we've got a financial sector that, in, in my opinion, was basically sound going into the crisis, but we have a, a significant external shock uh, happening from pandemic. A- and um, that means that not only is the financial sector affected, but the entire economy is affected. And so the, the primary cause of the crisis is the entire economy. And, and so the medicine may have to be a little bit different. It, it might not just be monetary stimulus that's needed, it might be fiscal stimulus. And so it, looking at the UK where I am now, I mean, the announcements that were made by uh, the Chancellor Sunak last Friday, I think this, this is the largest um, Keynesian intervention in a Western economy that I've ever seen in my life. Basically the government is coming online and saying, we will pay wages effectively. We we will pay you to keep your business open. I mean, this is classical uh, Keynesian Keynesian fiscal spending. And that's different to what happened um, in the financial crisis. In the financial crisis, we had cash injections into financial institutions and corporations to keep them afloat, to keep the economy going by proxy. This time, there's no proxy. It's direct government intervention directly into the lives of individuals. And so that, that is really different and really significant, and it remains to be seen what effect it will have. The theory tells us that this is the right thing to do. And so the financial system will be a beneficiary of this, but it won't be the primary beneficiary. It'll be a secondary beneficiary. Have I got some, way too academic and theoretical No, 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 there. no, no, no Sorry really
0: good. And also, does that give you more confidence in you know on those corporate debt holdings? If 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 the corporates are sort of you know if businesses are going to be directly intervened in and effectively bailed out, and that they're going to have their wage bill paid, so presumably that makes them a better credit risk than they were last week before the before well, yes, these kind of Keynesian interventions. Yeah if you have
1: a government backstop behind you, you know, keeping your business open, it's certainly far from ideal, and it might change your creditworthiness and change the relative attractiveness of your business, but it it does um, ultimately help with solvency. Now, the other really interesting thing that I'm starting to think about here, um, that I'm just beginning to think about, because, you know, we, we've been in this era for the last 30 years that we've called the great moderation when you know governments borrowed ever more money and interest rates have just gone down. Well, if, if now the government comes in with trillions and trillions of dollars of backstop and that backstop goes directly to businesses that have their own individual discrete risks does that say something for the long-term interest rate picture and i don't know the answer to that question but it's a very significant question to ask because long-term interest rates will have a really big effect on insurance company balance sheets in the long term Um, if we get back into a world where it's more difficult for governments to finance their balance sheets after this is all over that just changes the nature of investment income it changes the value of assets and everything else but Things are moving quickly right now. And it's just a question I'm asking in the background.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember last last time we worried about, uh, you know, was, was all the stimulus going to cause inflation and bring inflation back and, and then leave leave insurers in a real bind where they really weren't getting yes. the kind of, you know, negative real interest rates, where they weren't really getting the kind of returns to pay uh, to pay for that increased inflation that was going to come through on the claim side, but it didn't happen last right. time. I, so, agree. I know, so ha- and I thought it, I thought it would. Yeah. So <laughs> you're more worried <laughs> that they'll happen this time because this is more Keynesian, more, more, uh, more direct. I, I, I hope
1: it doesn't. I hope
0: that in two or three months
1: we, we come out the other side of this. I mean, that's probably too optimistic, but I hope that in some period of months we come out the other side of this, we have a big snapback, and we resume to business as usual. But, you know, um, if that's not what's going to happen, then yes, it will change uh, the government, the, the way governments finance themselves. It'll change taxation. Um, it will change the the yield curve and the interest rate picture and all of those things, and inflation perhaps. And all of those things uh, have big effects, uh, not just on insurance companies, but on all financial institutions and on the economy. So the, the intervention that we're making in the economy, again, I'll just say it again. I've never seen anything like this in my life. Uh, What I saw on Friday from the British chancellor, I don't know what the U S Congress is going to do today, but these are big economic interventions that are happening and gaming out the effects on insurance companies, balance sheets, isn't something that we can do right now. It's, it is something we're going to have to sit back and observe over a period of weeks and months, but it's a huge fiscal intervention and uh, it will have an effect.
0: Okay. Um, what about, I think it's fair to say, uh, it would be hard to argue that that we're not in a recession uh, at, at the moment, or that the economy is not contracting hugely because there is no economic activity <laughs> yes. that I can see outside my window. at The, moment, or the very, economy very little is recessed.
1: It. There is no doubt about that, yes.
0: So, um, okay, with the last financial crisis, obviously it came with a recession attached. Um, yep. What about, why don't we go through some of the kind of playbook of, you know, what happens to insurance uh, in recessions? Obviously, you have uh, you may be able to have uh, rate rises, but at the same time, you can't have you know your clients' uh, budgets are under pressure, and you have less economic activity, and you have less units of exposure increasing or, or they're decreasing. So, what generally, if we can run through what happened last time? Obviously, you know the the, the big recession of sort of two thousand and nine. Uh, yeah you know, what happened then and and sort of stuff to sort of remind ourselves of uh, now that we're, we've definitely got a recession, whether we snap back or not in, in the second half of the year is, is another thing. But uh, what are the classic yeah. things that happen?
1: Well, if even if I go back before 2009, if, if you look at the classical effect of a recession on the P&C insurance industry, if we can just use that generic term, I mean, the question becomes about top line. And I guess the not to not to say anything too frightening but if you think about the great depression um you know people just buy less of everything corporation corporate earnings slow down sales decrease activity slows and if that happens then people will spend less on insurance but they will not they will continue to claim um more in terms of uh, the insurance that they do buy so it It becomes a top line question and an underwriting question in a, in a prolonged recession. You have the grinding effect of higher claims, lower premiums, less demand, and that, that can become very difficult for insurance companies. Now in 2009, you know, we were coming out of an environment as we were going into the recession where we had had a liability crisis and that sustained pricing going into the recession at a slightly higher level. Um, But as, um, quantitative easing kicked in and as inflation fell and as claims started to fall post recession we had a very long period i think it was was it nine years where in most primary lines with some exceptions we saw rates just fall and that really didn't self-correct until 2017 2018 when we started to see marine aviation energy construction rates going back up but You could argue that that long fall in rates was in part a result of quantitative easing, uh, lower interest rates, easier access to capital for the insurance sector as we went into the wake of the great recession of 2009 and 2010. Um, Luckily for us, the lower inflation and the better reserving picture during that period meant that even though prices were falling, we were able to be profitable for most of that time. Um, the the danger in a prolonged recession from an external shock like the one we're going into now is that you know demand falls, but claims do not fall. And if you look at what was happening immediately prior to this, of course you could see that um, the big reserving cushion that we built up going into the last recession was starting to run out, and claims were starting to increase. So I think all bets are off. Uh, there the playbook that we used last time around has some relevant information in it, but it's not going to play out exactly the same this time.
0: So this time it's a little bit more worrying because we don't have the reserve cushion that we definitely had, uh, uh, you know, in 2008, 2009.
1: Um, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, we were all pretty worried sick last time too because we didn't know we had that reserve cushion. I certainly didn't um, back then. But yeah, we, we were definitely coming up onto a period where reserves were looking even at best uh, insurance companies I think for the reinsurance companies the big ones anyway with multi-line businesses that included insurance they were looking at calendar year combined ratios for 2019 of you know close to a hundred and so it, it's different from five or six years ago uh, when we had um, you know, combined ratios in the 90s bolstered by reserve releases and things like that to help us.
0: Do you think it is, it is possible to shrink uh, and increase rates and improve your results uh, in the time-honored fashion um, whilst, you know, you'll be, you'll be sort of shrinking, shrinking to, uh, you know, to sort of keep yourself fit and, uh, uh, you know, to, and can you replenish reserves in a time when it's very difficult to get the rate that you need?
1: Um, I, I've seen I've seen companies do it before, shrink to profitability, such as it's called. Um, look, let's not get ahead of ourselves too much. <laughs> I hope that I hope that not too many will have to do that, but it is possible. It all comes down to underwriting acumen and management discipline. Um, I, again, I'm I'm in the camp that's hoping for the snapback. Uh, I hope not naively um after we get through the the first uh, ugly months of this and hopefully there will be pent up demand that will help carriers um as they come out of this
0: uh, one other thing that uh, you know is a potential worry out there would be uh, again this is on the asset side of uh, uh, of the balance sheet obviously yeah. what happened one of the last things we didn't talk about was what the, the, the financial crisis uh developed and festered over time and then finally manifested itself as a sovereign debt crisis particularly in in the eurozone, um, yes. obviously, uh, one of the worst affected countries is is, is Italy. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, so, is it? One uh, of my you favorite, know, my, probably my favorite European country, Italy. Absolutely. I, I know you spent many. There, yes. You spent many years there, didn't you, David. But um, <laughs> yes. So again, but, is that? Is that something we should be marking down in our playbook to say, well, let's lighten up on a yes. uh, you know, what were the pigs last time? I think this wouldn't quite be, we wouldn't call it the pigs uh, this time. Oh, that's,
1: time. that's very, very uncharitable of you, Mark. But the, um, no, we have been watching Italian sovereign debt spreads and we've been watching uh, corporate spreads in Italy and they have been rising, no doubt about it. Um, Italy is in the eye of the storm here. I'm not going to um, hold back on that at all. Uh, Italy will, all of the things we've been talking about in terms of government financing, inflation, the population pyramid, the exposure of the crisis itself, are are at least initially going to be most acutely felt in Italy. And so, yes, it's something that we're keeping a very close eye on. And it's an area where, you know, if remedial action is going to be taken internationally, I would I would be in favor of helping Italy. Of course, perhaps I would say that, but no, it's definitely uh, got plenty of the exposures that we've been discussing, both at the macro fundamental and the micro level.
0: Yes, I mean, the, yes, I think the problem with our discussion now, the, where we keep coming up against things, is is the politics uh, and yeah. uh, the social. Con- <laughs> of course, you know, insurance lives in a social contract with society and an yeah. international society, uh, and uh, and that is the part that uh, it becomes politics. I think everything becomes politics uh, at a certain point. uh and and obviously we have the politics of our own of coverage issues of course with non-damage business interruption uh which is very clearly not covered and and clearly and not covered for a very good reason because I, i would certainly believe that it's a systemic risk so it can't be covered or it could be very limitedly covered but it can't be underwritten in the same way as you write fire for example so that's right again if if the if the legislature's Say to the industry, uh, you know, we want a new deal, we want you to pay all these claims that were not covered, then again, we would be in new territory. But then we're now, we're not talking about insurance, we're talking about politics, and we're talking about. Uh, you
1: know. Well, yes, we are. But I think that insurance clearly has a, a role to play in this environment. And I think that this is why it's so important at times like this. And I've been through three or four of them in my career. I don't know about you, maybe not as acute. But this is the time where individual attention needs to be paid by brokers to insurance seedants, to insurance companies. Um, we shouldn't be sending out blanket emails asking for extensions. We should be giving every single client the best individual attention that we can and remembering that, you know, in some cases, this is the reason why um, people buy insurance for extreme risks like this, for tail events. And even if something isn't explicitly covered, uh, you know, This is the time for us to look carefully and see what we can do and can't do because people will remember this. This is, I mean, just like we have vivid memories of the financial crisis, people are going to have vivid memories of how their carrier and how their broker acted uh, in this situation. And that's why it's really important to us at Hyperion to go through the blocking and tackling to make sure that we give qualitative service on claims uh, in every single instance. Um, and, and, and so I guess there's that we can always uh, bring that human element and that qualitative care into play in these situations and, and people will remember it. They always do when they look back over their careers and, and who was there for them. I mean, we, we want to be there for our clients right now.
0: Yeah. I suppose this is more of a direct test of insurers than it was last time, as it would it be fair to say.
1: In terms of the, the P&L side of the balance, sheet, so the, P, the P&L side of the financial statement and, and claims and how we perform in this environment, absolutely,
0: yes. I was just wondering also out loud, Um, is, uh, you know, this is probably the word, we really, really, really don't want to have a bad hurricane season this year. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I, I agree. We never want to have a bad hurricane season in, in any year for many reasons. but. Um, Again, I don't want to be the naive optimist. Uh, We're prepared. I've watched the reinsurance sector's balance sheet now for 20 years. Uh, Going into this, we were much better capitalized than we were, I mean, by some way than than we were in 2004 with Charlie, Ivan, and Gene, or 2005 with Katrina, Rita, and Wilma. And um, yes, this is going to have an effect on balance sheets, but um, at this moment, Standing here in late March of 2020, I, I think we can weather it, but but things are moving quickly.
0: One other thing, I should just want to ask about the, uh, on the personal level: What's it like working uh, in a big insurance broker, big international insurance broking and in, intermediary uh, organization uh-huh. uh, at this time? I mean, is everybody working from home? How's how's it all panning out? Is it all? What's it like being a virtual net uh, virtual company?
1: Well, that's, that's a very good question. And then I, it sounds like a softball. So I will plug Hyperion a little bit here if you don't mind. I mean, every broker is going to say that they're technologically advanced, but, but we are um, the most technically technologically advanced firm that I've, I've ever worked for. And um, we, we have every capability of servicing our clients uh, virtually um, and of speaking with each other virtually. And, and you know, everybody's going to talk about their technology and how wonderful their technology is that's great but what this enables us to do is it enables us to convey the sort of bespoke service client by client that we need to convey right now i mean as i said this is the time that clients will remember and we're determined in the next uh, coming weeks to to take every query and you know we're taking many queries we we have a lot of people calling us now more than ever actually asking us about credit risk, counterparty credit risk, asking us about uh, varying uh, line of business trends in, in the current environment, asking about the macro fundamental view, asking about the Hyperion House view on different parts of the sector, asking about business opportunities. And so being able to respond to every one of those requests when, when we have uh, markets and clients in need is really um, the most rewarding part of the job right now. So uh, without uh, being too gushy, this is this is a real advantage uh, of working in a firm like Hyperion, where we have the opportunity to look at every client individually and uh, really provide the kind of service that um, a bespoke, uh, broken team can provide.
0: Well, David, it sounds... I've, I've suddenly feeling guilty uh taking up any more of your time it sounds like you've got a <laughs> schedule of things to go back to uh, 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 but
1: well I, I said it was a delight so
0: don't worry <laughs> well no, well, good I, when I, I, I just want to thank you yes for, for, for all of your time and your thoughts right now at this difficult time and actually is there anything else do you think uh, before we uh we hang up uh anything else you'd like to talk about that we haven't spoken about
1: no i would just say to anybody in the whole sector you know clients uh markets, if there's anything we as Hyperion can do as your broker to help, call us. I'm not going to put my phone number on this podcast, but but our team is here uh, live in real time to, to help. Uh, this, is, this is the time that we all need to prove ourselves, and we will.
0: Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.